0: First of all, I just want to thank the elders for actually letting me and trusting me to stand here. Thank you. That's quite nice of you. Uh, One of our elders, actually. Um, I just wanted to say thanks for the trust that they've shown to me in actually letting me stand in front of you and talk. I'm going to try not to deal with anything too, too controversial today. Despite the ladies in the front row, I am not going to be discussing whether or not unicorns exist or are are awesome, (laughs) despite our ongoing debate. I have my opinions, obviously, but we will not be commenting. What I do want to talk to you about today is something that I kind of have experienced a couple of times, and I was just wondering if I'm alone in this. I'm guessing I'm not but i just wanted to check and see with my church body my congregation my friends and family if this is an experience that you've had i've had these times when i felt god calling me to do something to act in a certain way to do certain things and it's been amazing because i've said yes to god i've said yes lord i would love to do that and then all the things just start working together. It's amazing. You know, you see uh, these certain things fall into place and all sorts of stuff seems to be happening. And I'm praying and I'm saying, yes, Lord, thank you, thank you, thank you. And then nothing. And then I wait a couple of days, you know, because, you know, I, I, I do have a little bit of patience. Not a lot, but A little. And I wait a couple of days, and I say, surely today something is going to change. Something's going to happen, and this thing that I think God is going to do through me and in my life is going to happen today. And so I wake up in the morning and say, okay, maybe it's today, maybe it's today. Nothing. And that's gone on for longer periods of time in some cases than I care to talk about. In fact, in certain things in my life, I, by confession, I'm still waiting for some of these things. I don't know if you've had that experience. Maybe some of you are waiting for God to do things in your life right now. Maybe you think that God has you know, set things in place and put things in order, and you think you know what God's going to do right now in the near future. But for some reason, you're still waiting and I mean, it's funny for some things, you know, like uh, whether or not, you know, I, uh, I'm going to get a better job or those kinds of things. But some of these things that you can be waiting for can be kind of heart-wrenching. I mean, when you watch your friends, you know, go off, get jobs, get married, have kids, and you're still single. That's still, that still, that can hurt. It can hurt sometimes when you, 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 you see people getting into jobs and ministries and advancing in things that you desire above everything else, and they're good, godly things, and you think God has blessed you and called you into this, and yet nothing happens. And you know intellectually God is God. He's sovereign. He rules all things. And as I said when I was dealing with Nehemiah chapter 1, God's promises stand, and you believe that, and you know with all of your head that this is true. But in the mornings when you get up, and it's another day where it hasn't happened, where what you thought was promised to you isn't given to you. A little hard. Nehemiah knew exactly how that felt. So uh, today I'm going to be dealing with Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. You may want to open your Bibles there, but I'm not going there immediately. You see, and the reason I'm not going there immediately is because there's something in what Nehemiah does in chapter 2, the way he reacts in the first 10 verses of chapter 2, that honestly needs a bit of background. You need to understand a little bit of where Nehemiah is coming from because his reactions are not something that just comes out of thin air. There's something that comes from the kind of person Nehemiah has been developed by God to be. It's based on the kinds of things that Nehemiah knows about God and believes. And so I'd like to just, first of all, kind of re-examine what I said last time and explain why Nehemiah is gonna be reacting this way. The first, and, and this is the first point of the sermon if you're taking notes. First of all, Nehemiah knows that God does not forget people. He does not change his mind. He's not like a son of man that changes his mind. Uh, From Numbers chapter 23, verses 18 to 20, if you want to know the story, the people of Israel are actually out in the wilderness. Uh, This king is saying, I got to destroy these guys because they're going to overrun me. So he pays a prophet of God to curse the people of Israel. And uh, his name is Balak and the prophet's name is Balaam. And so... Balak tells Balaam, We're going to, I want you to curse these people, the people of Israel, the people of God's promise, the people that God has saved for a good and noble purpose, who are actually still in the wilderness and still haven't come into the promised land. And verse chapter 23, verses 18 to 20, Balaam take up, takes up his discourse and says to Balak, Rise, Balak, and hear, give ear to me, O son of Zippor. God is not man that he should lie? Or a son of man that he should change his mind? Has he said and he will not do it? Or has he spoken and he will not fulfill it? Behold, I received a command to bless. He has blessed, I cannot revoke it. God does not change his mind. And of course, Nehemiah being an Israelite in the the exile world, somebody who's actually read his Bible before, who knows his teachings, knows this. God is not a man that he should change his mind. And a little bit later, when the prophet Isaiah is talking about specifically, actually, the things that Israel is going through right now in, in its exile that Nehemiah is going through, Isaiah 49, verses 13 to 16. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget the nursing child? That she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. God does not forget people. It doesn't happen. That's an impossibility. And so if you're having that experience that I have, uh, I want to add a little bit to the idea that God is sovereign and that his promises stand. I want to link that to to you in your heart today. He does not forget people. So he's not forgotten you. And Nehemiah knows he has not forgotten Nehemiah, which is important because Nehemiah has to deal with something. This is Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had not been sad in his presence. Now, you don't see it yet because it's actually the first little section there. When we talked last time about Nehemiah, we were talking about Nehemiah. He heard from his brother about this time back in uh, the month of Chislev, five months ago. Five months ago, about half a year. Could have been at least as much as six months ago. We're not really sure, you know, Both mo- it was in a month, in a month, could have been the beginning of the month, end of the month, end of the month, beginning of the month, I don't know. Somewhere between four and six months. For all that time, we know that Nehemiah has been praying and fasting and caring about the, pr- the problems that his own people are going through, the people of Israel, around Jerusalem, because Jerusalem's wall has been broken down and it's not rebuilt. Now, that doesn't sound like a big deal to us because we don't have walls around our towns. I, I don't drive outside St. John's and, you know, have to go through the city gate to get to Bay Roberts. Uh, have to go under the overpass, but, you know, not not really a city gate. It's But at the time that ne- Nehemiah was writing and at the time before the advent of modern technologies like, you know, Uh, police forces guns those kinds of things walls were important to keep people safe so when somebody says you know there is no wall around the city imagine no police force no military no effective method of protection for innocent people bandits can come in and out people who don't like you can come and kill you all no big deal because there's nothing standing in their way there's no wall and of course, Nehemiah is broken by this because Zion, as, as I dealt with in, in uh, Isaiah, is actually God's promised land. It's the city of his temple. And yet it has no wall. It's broken down. And it's not actually in Nehemiah, but if you flip over to Ezra chapter 4, you'll find out that the king that we're going to be talking about here is the same king who made sure that this would be the case about Jerusalem. In Ezra chapter 4, Ezra had come, uh, well, the people of Israel had come back, this is before Ezra, and tried to rebuild the temple and the city, and some people who didn't like Israel, we'll meet them a bit today, said, this is a terrible thing, this town, this city should never be rebuilt because they're rebels, they're terrible. And they sent a letter to Artaxerxes the king, and Artaxerxes the king read it and did a bit of a research on it and found out that Israel, yes, they're a terrible, terrible people. We're going to make sure that they don't rebuild their king, their their area. Because if they do, they'll, they'll they'll take over their land and they won't bring back tribute to Persia. So Nehemiah's king is the reason that this is the way it is. And Nehemiah is broken, but he's been broken now For months and he's tried to keep up appearances, he's tried to keep up his job for good reason. He hasn't been sad in the presence of the king Artaxerxes. And the king said to me, why is your face sad seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. Now, Uh, If you've read any of the other uh, books of the Bible around this time, you know that there's a good reason for him to be afraid. If you read the book of Esther, you find out that Persian kings, when they're drinking, can be a little impulsive. Uh, In one case, you know, the king in, in Esther is drinking, and he says, well, I'll just massacre an entire segment of my population. It's just something he's going to do because he's drunk now, and you know somebody he liked asked him. At another point, so he decides that the same guy who he just asked before is, is a terrible man, and I, I really don't like him, and so he decides to kill him right there. Persian kings are a little impulsive when it comes to their drinking, And we know, and, and as uh, Nehemiah said, Nehemiah was before, the wine's before the guy. And I hadn't been sad in his presence. And now I'm sad in his presence and the king notices. This could be very, very bad for Nehemiah. So he's scared. And I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should should not my face be sad where the city of my father's graves lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? And the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. Probably a good reaction. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And a hush falls over the crowd. When you are actually waiting for God to do something in your life, and when you're waiting for God's timing in something, you can have an awful lot of built up pressure waiting for this. And at some points, it comes to a head. There's just this one moment where you're bringing forward the request that you have, the thing that God has put on your heart, and you're putting it in front of other people to see if this can be done. It's almost like your life's on pause for a second. Now, remember, the king Artaxerxes has no reason to provide Nehemiah anything. Nehemiah is a cupbearer, I'm sure Artaxerxes likes him and trusts him, but as I've said before, Persian kings have a habit of doing weird things to people they like and trust while they're drinking. And he's drinking. Artaxerxes is the reason that Israel is in the position that it's in right now. So he has no reason to need to know that this is going to go well. And so there's a hush kind of in... The and, and you want to be more... I want to be more extreme about this. It's almost like a hush over reality. Because it's like the promises of God have come forward. The people of Israel know the promises of God. And then this is an opportunity for God to work or not. And there is no earthly reason why this should work out. So it's a little surprising. A little... Lifting actually what the king says verse 6 and the king said to me the queen sitting beside him how long will you be gone and when will you return he doesn't say yes he simply assumes that this is going to happen this one moment where everything's, uh, is, is st- all the stress is bearing down on Nehemiah, and Nehemiah hears this coming from the king. How long are you going to be gone? And uh, Nehemiah goes even further, it, again, being a little, uh, being more bold than I could be. So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time, and I said to the king, he asks for more. If it pleases the king, let letters be sent to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber, to make beams for the gates of the fortresses of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. So there's we've just learned a fair bit about the situation. I just wanted to comment uh, f- uh, on a couple of things that we can learn here before we go too much further. First of all, we know that God has not forgotten Nehemiah. We know that for a fact now. We're looking at this back about 3,000 uh, 3, years later. Well, 2,600 some odd. Anyway, about 3,000 years we can see back that God has worked in Nehemiah's life. Nehemiah had no reason to believe this when he was first talking to the king. And yet the king reacts as the way that that Nehemiah believes he should because the hand of the Lord God is upon him. And things that he asks for are actually going to be granted him to work through for for God's glory. But God does not forget his people. Nobody's gasping yet. You probably should be. So just look at me. Just just God does not forget his people. You get that? You, you remember what I said at the beginning about all those things that you know you feel God has possibly forgotten you? He's got these th- ideas that He's put in your head. You believe that these are things that He's working through to completion and there's nothing happening. He's not forgotten you. God doesn't forget. He doesn't change His mind. He has not forgotten you because God does not Forget his people, but we've learned more than this: God fulfills His promises in His time for His glory and his people's joy. Can, friends, can you imagine how Nehemiah felt that moment when suddenly suddenly the, the, everything he's been praying for for five months, things that have been going terribly with his country for generations? about 70 years actually, since the fall to the Babylonian empire. All of this is going to change now. What, what, just before this conversation with the king, things are terrible. There, God is doing nothing. And then with, with just a few words, the king says, how long are you going to be gone? And everything is changed. Nehemiah's world is completely different because God has actually visited. God is acting. God is working. And he's working more, more than anybody could possibly have expected. Remember, Artaxerxes is the guy who said, let not this this town be built. Why should the king suffer loss? And yet Nehemiah says to the king, you know what, give me letters so that I can get resources to build this wall, so that I can get benefits to build this wall. The king who said, let not this city be built, is not only saying, okay, go ahead. He's saying, I'll pay for it. I will build it. God is working to bring himself glory because the people of Israel are not going to pay for this. It's not going to be Nehemiah saying, oh, wow, you know, I'm just such an awesome guy. I'm such a massively amazing planner. I was able to build the walls of Jerusalem. No, that's not the message you get in the book of Nehemiah. The message you get in the book of Nehemiah is God does his good works. For his glory, for your joy. Nehemiah gets to be along for the ride. He gets to be the person who God uses to do all this. He gets to have a front row seat to what God is doing because he believes that God does not forget his people. And he applies that not just to you know, some kind of nebulous group of people. God has not forgotten Nehemiah. And Nehemiah believes that. God fulfills his promises in his time for his glory and his people's joy. But lest you think that this is uh, all going to be some kind of easy fairy, st- fairy story, I love the Bible. The Bible is probably more believable than most books written today because it's not a fairy story. Think realistic things happen in it, you know, in... in, in in fairy stories, it's going to be, oh, the king said okay, and you know he sent an army with me, and we're all going to be fine, and it's going to be built, and there's not going to be any problems. This is why I'm going to verses 9 and 10. Just keep reading here. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river. After I've gotten letters to get timber, make beams for the gates, the fortress, the temple, for the wall of the city, and the house that I shall occupy, the king granted me what I asked. For the good hand of God was upon me, and now I came to the governors beyond the river. Come to the king, gave them the king's letters, and so they said, "Yeah, sure, whatever." No, that's not what they said. Now the king had sent me with officers of the army and horsemen. Now, you can fake documents, you can write letters, and you can put stamps on them. Generally speaking, you can't fake the army. It's one thing for me to walk in here and say, I have a warrant and show you a warrant to do something or other. It's another for me to walk in here with five RCMP officers flanking me in full riot gear and say, Warrant. (laughs) It's a completely different situation. That's the situation Nehemiah is in. So they can't really say, You know what? I don't think the king really meant to send you. No, he's got the army with him. Yet... But when Senballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So they're displeased greatly by this. And just for a bit of a spoiler alert, you know it's going to be a little while before I get to preach for you again. So to let you know, these guys are going to be the villains for the rest of the book. Tobiah and Sanballat are not nice dudes. There's going to be another couple who will be added on later. But let's face it, things get opposed even when God is working. God's work is often opposed. That doesn't mean it doesn't go forward. It doesn't mean that God doesn't work. It doesn't mean that things that God has forgotten you. But people oppose the work of God. And when you think about it for a second that shouldn't surprise us. Because I remember when I wasn't a believer, I would oppose the work of God. And and I would think it was a good thing to oppose the work of God back when I was not a believer. So why would it surprise me that when God works in my life, when God decides that there's some way that I should be working out and that things should be happening in my life, why should I be surprised when I've noticed that some people don't think what I'm doing is a good thing. And, and it's interesting too, because if you, you you're not going to see this too easily by the fact that you know Sanballat and Tobiah are not really common names now. Anybody here, Sanballat? Do I get a Tobiah in the house? No. They're they're actually possible, but there are a few people. I've actually said this, and you know somebody's raised their hand. Yeah, I'm Tobiah. Um, but anyway. <laughs> These are actually names that seem quasi-Jewish. These guys are not separated completely from the people of Israel. Most likely and most scholars believe that these guys are kind of the proto beginnings of what will later become Samaritans. These are people who have kind of a syncretistic version of Judaism, uh, not a real uh, solid one. They kind of believe some of the things that Jews believe and some of the things that they don't believe. Um, at this period in time, they're kind of a different people, of, uh, people in the area, separated from the people of God, but they kind of see themselves as the people of God. And so when they see the place of Israel, of Judah, being rebuilt, they kind of feel that it's an attack on them because it's an attack on their religious background, it's on their understanding, it's on their all sorts of their religious viewpoints. It's kind of similar to if if we as a church, you know, heard that uh, a really good church down the street that preaches the gospel, that preaches the gospel well, suddenly had a gri- had revival and thousands of people were coming to them and then we go, "We got to oppose this." That's what these guys are doing. They should know the God of Israel, but because the God of Israel is working in a way that they do- that it isn't helping them, They're opposing it. But the work of God does get opposed. So, the one point of my sermon. And uh, yeah, I guess it's a little early, but I haven't actually gotten to um, applications yet. But there is only one point to my sermon. Several applications, but only one point. God has not forgotten you. The God of Jesus Christ, the God of our King and Father in heaven, God, the real one, the creator of all things, has not forgotten you. You may be facing problems right now. You may be facing difficulties right now. You may be happy and having a joyful time right now. God has not forgotten you. And I have to say this a bunch of times because we live in 21st century the Western world where we have this weird idea that we can separate what we believe about God from what we believe about everything else. I mean, uh, the, the concept of secularism actually exists in our society. Most societies don't even understand what we're talking about because the idea that separating you can separate your religion away from everything else in your life to almost everybody else is insane. I'm actually thinking they might be right. We imagine, though, that like once we walk out that door, you know, we go into we go to you know Swiss chalet or wherever for lunch, or you know we go home and pick up our stuff or go to uh, Wendy's. We imagine we've left God behind. Uh, we don't. God's not forgotten you. Uh, God's God. He can't forget you. He's God regardless of what situation you're in, regardless of what you believe about God, he has not forgotten you. You may have walked away from God. You may believe that you are nowhere near God. You're wrong. In fact, you're deluded and wrong. God is still there. You can, sit, you can cover your ears all you want and say, la, 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 God has forgotten me. I don't need to worry about God. God has not forgotten you. You may be utterly depressed right now and thinking, oh my, all the things that are going wrong in my life, all the things that I've seen going wrong around me, God, the, the things that are going wrong in the Middle East and things that I see going wrong in my own life, God has forgotten us completely. Nope because God has not forgotten you. He does not forget. He's God. There are three major applications for this. Because when you say God has not forgotten you, that means some things. Um, again, very interesting thing that we sometimes come up with. We imagine that we can believe things about God that don't actually impact the rest of our lives. You know, I can believe that God is a Trinity. I can believe that God is omnipotent and omnipresent, but that doesn't really matter. Yeah, it does. The fact that God has not forgotten you is not a simple abstract theological point. It's not something you can put on a, a wall and imagine, you know, I can leave it on the wall and, you know, remind myself of it when I need to feel life this way, but, you know, rest of the time I don't need to worry about this. No. God has not forgotten you. And this means things for our lives. And I I, I don't really want to talk about this point. Because this is the hard point. This is the point that isn't very comfortable. God has not forgotten you. God has not forgotten me. God has not forgotten us. So now is the time to repent. I say that for a very simple reason and for actually two reasons, negative reason and positive reason. Negatively, God has not forgotten you. God has not forgotten you for one moment of one millisecond of one day in the entirety of your life. He does not forget you now while you're in church. He didn't forget you 10 minutes before church when you were at the lineup at Starbucks and you were just tapping your, fo- uh, tapping your foot because that person in front of you couldn't figure out how to order a coffee at Starbucks. Your anger and hatred of that person over something so idiotic and trivial is not forgotten. It's not. He saw it, he feels it. He was actually present there while you were doing that. He could see what you were thinking in your mind. He could feel what you were feeling about it. And he knows what you thought about one of his creations. He knows that because God does not forget. Don't be like the foolish people in Psalm 94, the foolish wicked. They imagine, oh, God has not seen. God has not heard. And, you know, to paraphrase the writer of the Psalm, God makes eyes. Of course he saw you. god remembers that's the negative point but here's the positive point and this is why repentance is the proper repli- response and not you know just oh my goodness i'm such a terrible person god's going to hate me forever because god has not forgotten you and he who saw our mistakes he who saw our sin did a specific reaction And my favorite part for this is in Romans 8, starting at verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, and he is for us if you're in Christ, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who is to bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies Translation, there's only one person in the universe who can actually bring the full charges that we deserve against us. And in Jesus Christ, he's on our side. He's When he saw our wickedness, when he saw our problems, his reaction wasn't to cast us into utter darkness forever now. It was to provide us a way to be with him forever through Jesus Christ, his son, he paid for your sin. Friends, don't don't pretend we're not sinners. That's a a complete waste of time. God is not floored by that. He's not snowed by the fact that you come to church on Sunday. He's with you every moment of every day for the entirety of your lifetime. Don't pretend that, you know, you just because you're here, that you know, God thinks you're okay. He knows all of your problems. In fact, I, I'm going to go further. M- most of us, you know, we recognize we're sinners, so i I, I, I'm pr- I may be the worst sinner here. I might be. We could have a contest later. but I know that you guys are not all perfect either. I know you guys are in the same kind of boat as I am. that's why I'm, I feel comfortable to be able to say this to you that I'm not I, I don't actually have it all together. There's not one, for all those moments that God knows about my entire life, there's not one moment where he stops and says, "Oh, that's impressive, Steve. It just never happens. I'm pretty sure he doesn't say that about you. So there's no good reason for me to hide my sin in front of you guys. There's no good reason for me to hide my sin in front of God. I can turn to Jesus right now. And he will (laughs) forgive me. I can put my trust and faith in him right now. Right now. It doesn't have to be separation. I don't have to be separated from him. Neither do you. So God's not forgotten you. So repent and trust in Jesus. And I mean that if you are a Christian and you've walked away a little bit, you know, found yourself in problems. I also mean it if you're not a believer now, if you've never talked about Jesus. Jesus. God knows your sin, and he did provide a way for you to be with him. You don't need to be scared of your own sin, because, not because your sin is good, but because Jesus has already defeated it. Just trust in him. Second, God has not forgotten you, so be patient and faithful today. I, again, I did talk about the fact that there are certain things in my life that I've prayed for, that I've hoped for in my life, that God just simply has seen fit not to provide me. But that doesn't mean I just sit and wait and, you know, sit in a corner and suck my thumb, play with silly string and hope that, you know, I can entertain myself for a little while. There are things I can do now. There are things that Require me to be faithful now. Are you waiting for God to give you an advance in your job, to help you understand your job a little bit better? You know what you should do now? Spend your time now learning to be diligent, learning to work as if to the Lord, learning to do your job as if God is the person you work for. Because, you know, a little secret, he is. Are you waiting for the opportunity to bring your friend into the kingdom of God to show him the truth of who Jesus Christ is so that he can be part of the church with you, a brother, not just a friend? Well, right now, start becoming the kind of guy that's going to show Jesus to him in everything that you do. Take the time now to be the kind of person that God calls you to be. Are you waiting for a husband or a wife you desire to have a spouse, spend now becoming the kind of person that would be a God-reflecting husband or wife. Even if he never lets you get married, that's worth your time. Become godly. Time that we have now in waiting for God to act as Nehemiah knew. Because Nehemiah did it. Remember, I said for five months, he's fasting and praying for God to do something here. He doesn't lose heart. In fact, it's even worse than that. He knows exactly what to ask for when the king says yes. He doesn't just say, well, I need to think about this a little while to figure out how to get this fixed up. He knows exactly what he has to ask the king for. Give me letters to the governors. Give me letters to the people who own trees and stuff and do this. That's what we need. He knew what needed to be done. He had spent time developing his character to be the kind of person to ask for this. That's what we need to be doing in this time. Drive deeper into Christ while you wait. Don't waste the waiting time. Waiting time is actually important. God's working things together for your good. But don't waste the time he's giving you now. The time of waiting is actually something he's given you. But be payth- we need to be patient and faithful today. Finally, we need to be steadfast in the face of opposition. Now, I know this is not current Christian thinking on this kind of stuff. Current Christian thinking is if God wants something, he opens the doors and he closes the doors he doesn't want you to go through. That's the current view of discernment. It's not the biblical view of discernment. It's our view of discernment. Because if you go back through your Bible, I'm pretty sure having a sea between you and freedom is a pretty big closed door. And yet God got mad at Moses for not walking forward. And I I hate to say it, you know, when you look in Acts and Paul and Silas are singing and praying and singing songs to Jesus, and the door, and there's an earthquake, and the doors open, the doors opened. That's an open door. God specifically made sure that they didn't go through it, because He was going to work His good works by not going through it. No, what Christians should do, and I'm sorry about this excursus thing. it's a personal pet peeve of mine. I, I go to Rome just Romans chapter twelve. This is how you discern just just saying. I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Okay, uh, I need to translate that for you a little bit so that you can understand it. It means present your bodies as a sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which means give yourself to God, completely to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And and just in case, you know, just to give you the hint that this is about discernment, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Nehemiah knew this. He knew that the closed door of Artaxerxes having been the person who, closed, who, destroyed, who wanted Jerusalem destroyed and kept destroyed, he knew that that wasn't the closed door that God wanted him to stay away from. Why? Because his mind had been renewed. He'd been transformed by the renewal of his mind. And by testing, he was able to discern what was the will of God in this situation. He knew that this closed door would open. Not because he's a smart man, not because he's got, you know, super spiritual powers and, you know, is able to get a quiver shiver in the proper time. He knew that God it follows his promises. He knew that God does not forget people, and so he did what God called him to do. We need to do the same. Friends, if we as a church become what I pray we become here, in, my dark, in my, the dark closet of my prayers, I pray that we would be the kind of church that I desire to see here in St. John's, the kind of church where people actually love one another, where it's not a put on, where we don't, we don't just simply pretend that we like each other for the good times and for the bad times, the, the kind of place where I have friends who will call me on my idiocy when I'm being an idiot it's pretty common so you know you'll be calling me a lot the kind of place where the people will be affirming gifts in other people the kind of place where people love as Christ loved us the kind of place where evil isn't really ex- isn't accepted but evil people are given the opportunity to come to Christ because I'm an evil person and I need Christ where the, where the city is transformed as people come to know and love Jesus Christ. And, and, and I dream big where we're not the only church like that, where there's a network of believing communities all the way throughout the city, the province, the nation, heck, the world, I can dream big, where people love as Christ loves, where people act as Christ act, Acted where we are transformed to be the very image of Christ. And if that happens, there are going to be a lot of people who hate us. There are going to be a lot of things that look like closed doors to us. If we become the kind of church that Christ calls us to be, there are going to be people who, at your work, at your friends, they are going to be friends of yours, families of yours, we're going to call you all sorts of funny names for the sake of the gospel, and our job will still be to love them. Our job will still be to tell them about the love we found in Jesus Christ. But we're not gonna do that if we simply have this superficial idea of who God is and what God has planned for us. If we have a superficial idea of what discernment is, because we'll imagine that, you know, the guy who just called me a bigot doesn't need Jesus, and so I don't need to pray for him and tell him about Jesus. No, actually, the guy who just called you bigot, that's the one God's probably putting on your heart to pray for even more. So yeah, we will be opposed. We need to be steadfast in the face of it. And the only way that's going to happen is if we remember the one and only point in the sermon, and I hope because since one point we'll all remember this, because the one I forget the most easily, he's not forgotten you. He really hasn't. Wake up in the morning for the rest of this week, remember, he hasn't forgotten you. When you're waiting for God to do great things in your life, and you think that he couldn't possibly have great things right now because you're too old or you're too sick or you're too stupid to be able to do what God needs you to do. He hasn't forgotten you. He knows your infirmities. He knows your problems, and he calls you anyway. He has not forgotten you. When we as a church face difficulties and problems, when we face the false, uh, the possible false teachers who will come among us, as Daniel will probably be preaching at at some point in the near future. When we face the problems of people trying to bring schism into us, when we, pre- when we have the problems of our own hearts, trying to believe the worst about the people in- around us, he hasn't forgotten us. He still stands with us. He's still there to help us, to change us, to help us to be transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we will love one another as we need to love one another. He hasn't forgotten you, brothers and sisters. And he never will. Just go back. And if I don't want you to believe my words on this. Just to get it from the, straight from the horse's mouth, so to speak. This is Matthew chapter 28. I think you probably know what I'm going to say. It's the last words Jesus said before he went into heaven. And Jesus came to them and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Not a lot of discernment necessary there. We know that that's what he wants us to do. But he doesn't want to do it, he doesn't tell us that we do it alone. He says, And behold, I am with you always. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Friends, believe this now. Believe this before we face our, di- our problems and our difficulties. Believe this before we have to deal with our Monday mornings or our Tuesday mornings when we, we think God has forgotten us because we're too far away from the worship singing that we had on Sunday morning. Believe it now. Get it settled in your heart now that he has not forgotten you, so that when you're tempted to believe it, you just won't. Drive into Christ, drive into his love, spend time understanding him, be transformed by being with him because he hasn't forgotten you. He hasn't forgotten you, and he never will. Lord God, it's tempting to imagine that we live in a world where you aren't present, where you don't do things around us. And and when we're in church on Sunday morning and we look into our Bibles, we know that's kind of dumb. Lord God, we pray now that you do a work by your Holy Spirit in our hearts and in our minds. Change us change our weird assumptions so that we would come to understand that you have not forgotten us, that the times of waiting that you've put us through right now will someday blossom into glorious redemption of everything that we've, had, we've feared before. Lord, God, help us to stand in the face of opposition, not based on our own strength, but based on the strength that you give based on the fact that you are more valuable than anything else, Lord God, we need you. We need you because we will, forget we will forget far more easily than you do. And the thing we want to remember most is that even when we forget, you haven't. Lord God, thank you for that. Thank you that you remember us, even in our darkest times. And all God's people said,